Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the shit show known as Movie of the Year, the only podcast on the internet that has the science and the screaming to determine what is the single greatest movie of any given year. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host for this, the single least downloaded episode of Movie of the Year in history. (laughs) Tonight, we take a look at Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, a movie written, co-written and directed by Paul Schrader. Um, a pop filter, maybe future Hall of Famer. Um, and we are going to break this movie down in a competitive game show style. Joining me, as always, is the winner, the champion, as far as last week goes, because we watch the Goonies <laughs> and we alternate every week. Mike, you're here. <laughs> yeah. You're developing a reputation, especially this season, where. Uh, you win all of the dumb movies that children like, mm-hmm. and then your opponent, whoever that may be, uh, will win the smart ones. Yeah. Do you agree with that uh, assertion? I, I mean, I'm a man of the people, you know. I, I don't, I don't pinch my nose at anybody. I don't think I'm above anybody. I, I, I sniff all the underwear. Uh, sniff all the butts. And you don't, so I you don't bite your thumb at anybody. I bite my thumb. I do bite my thumb at you, sir. But I don't bite my thumb. Whoa. That's a reversal. That's a, yeah, weird. full reversal. <laughs> <laughs> they just get confused and walk <laughs> away. <laughs> uh, we're not sure. Greg. Yo. We, we've we decided to ask you to come here and challenge Mike. Yes. On this very special episode. I, I do think that we are going to talk about a movie tonight that is closer to your comes and sees than your goonies. Yeah. Would you agree? No. Here's what I do. Whenever I'm watching a movie, I ask myself, do other people think this movie is important? And if I think that they think it is, I get very excited about it. <laughs> and I am assuming that this is the kind of movie that people who are in the know get very excited about. And so I myself am very excited about it. Uh, motherfucker, it's got subtitles and some of it is black and white. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, of course it's important. Some of it is very bright color. Though. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, yeah. very bright color surrounded by pitch blackness and a weird artsy soundstage thing. It's really hidden all of the things the NPR crowd loves. Sometimes we'll talk about movies where it goes from quiet whispering to loud explosions, and you have to like have the controller, the remote in your hand to control the volume. This is the the video version of that. Like, yeah. don't open your eyes too wide during the Hit black and, dim, and white dim, part. Dim, 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 <laughs> dim. <laughs> My wife is sleeping. Please <laughs> this dim. pavilion is too golden. <laughs> Burn it to the ground. <laughs> Oh, that's gonna be bright. But this is uh, this movie when we first heard about it on like the intro show. I had a feeling. I think we all did that it was probably gonna turn out to be pretty good, even though we didn't know much about it. And it's just another one of these really very very high quality movies that were not mm. big blockbusters, but are like just a delight to watch. Uh, very interesting and asks a million questions and probably doesn't really answer many of them, but they're very interesting questions. Yeah, it really highlights how many movies I watched growing up uh, that asked zero questions of its audience. Yeah, yeah. And we're we're all one chapter. Yeah. And basically most movies, most popular movies, like The Goonies is an example of this, does a lot more giving answers than it does asking things. It's like, it, it tells you this is the way people should live and they don't because they're stupid, crusty, wealthy, golf course loving idiots. Or they're, you know, they're like they're evil kids. But, you know, the way you should be is you should love people, even if they're a little strange. But this movie is like Mishima is just like, yeah, I don't know, man. 
life's really complicated. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of stuff happens. Is is beauty power or is beauty like a rotten tooth? Who can yeah. say? <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of a false dichotomy between those two guys. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe beauty's something different than, that, than either one of those. So throughout the course of this episode, we're going to see what... We're not going to answer any of these questions. If Paul Schrader decided not to, then we're probably not going to. Yeah, I'm not going to do his job for him. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking lazy asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But we are going to bring up the questions and discuss if they were well asked. And and then ultimately, yeah, answer them. We're fucking three white dudes (laughs) on a podcast. Like This is what we're here for. Uh, (laughs) But I don't know if we're going to talk a lot about what we thought about the movie. So I want to we've got like two minutes right in the beginning to talk about our opinions Um, overall. How did this movie work for you? And I say overall in like in a way that's different than when I say that about most movies because this is such a a collage, it's such mm-hmm. a pastiche that it does run the risk of some working, some not, you know, or none of it being great, but all of it adding up to greatness. For sure, because each I mean, there's there there are four chapters that lets you know in the title, but each chapter has the subsections between present day flashbacks and then the story adaptations and. That sets itself up for, at least if you're on this kind of podcast, to compare them the whole time. To start competing. <laughs> like, well, that one's good. I guess this one's not as good. Uh, but everything we like in a, in a moody movie is, will I keep thinking about this? And it is really, really hard not to. It might just be the questions they're asking are the kinds we love anyway. But it is really hard to ignore and forget this movie. Now, Greg, you watched Topher Grace's edit, right? Where it's all chronological and most of it is the prequels. <laughs> yeah. Did that change it for you? Uh, it's hard to say because I didn't watch the other one. That's true. How would you so, know? Uh, I'll tell you one thing. It was 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, this would have been the best movie I had ever seen on Movie <laughs> of the Year, except I, I'm going to say it. I don't think I like it more than I like um, Brazil and Come and See. But, like... I think that these are the three best movies we've ever seen for the, I, I don't know if I'm just like going through something. And so I'm excited to, to watch these movies, but like they challenge the notion of, of what movies really are. And in doing that, um, this one by doing it like with a lot of it, like in your face staging, like now we're obviously on a sound stage. Um, this is obviously like, this isn't the reality of the movie. This is a fiction inside the reality of the movie. And all of that stuff keeps you so un unmoored in a really exciting way um and you just kind of give yourself over to the experience of this movie and you are sure you're in capable hands almost right away and it's just it's transporting i think that that, that's what i've liked about all three of these movies come and see was transporting in a very horrific way obviously and some of this is very tough as well but it's just like it is such an experience from the music to the color to the different stagings it's just absolutely blow you away like one moment to the next and i'm with you mostly i uh, i don't i don't know and part of it maybe i read paul schrader's book last week where i read most of it i read i read it until mary trump's book came in the mail and then uh-huh. i i had to switch over but and i think it's possible that that sort of hurt me uh watching the movie but the the, the book is all about his idols you know his three director idols and I see a lot of stuff that he's not doing as successfully as those three guys. Oh, and wow. he, he'll, he'll be the first one to tell you that. Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff. I think there's a lot of s- slow cinema, as he calls it in the movie, 
And then I think there's a lot of stuff where he sort of hedges his bets and does go a little Hollywood. And we're going to get to this later, but your treatment of your, um, your I don't know, your main character, especially in uh, Biopig, is very, very interesting to me. And his treatment here is something that I'm, I think I'm going to be grappling with for the rest of my life. Um, mm. You know, like, his decisions here, whether or not this movie totally worked for me, it, I mean, it, it has to go high on some sort of list. I don't know, make a list and put it high because of all of the decisions. You know, yeah. like, this is this is not someone who is like, I don't know, movies work like this, right? Let's do it that way. It's a lot like Come and See in Brazil in that way. Like, this movie has a high decisions per second rate. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy is doing stuff nonstop. <laughs> and All you right. can like or not like what he's doing, but it, he's throwing a lot at you really fast. Let's, uh, I want to dive into it, so let's take a break. When we come back, let's, uh, we're going to talk. We're going to dive into Mishima. In 1985, Best Beard Buds Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas decided to raise $10 million for Paul Schrader, despite the fact that he didn't have a beard, and despite the (laughs) fact they knew there was no fucking chance they would get their money back. That's because Paul Schrader decided to co-write and direct Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. The movie is a biopic of Japanese writer Yukio Mishima, but we're using the term biopic very loosely, more loosely than people who call them biopics. As the title states, the movie is broken down not just into four chapters, called Art, Beauty, Action, and Finally, Harmony of Pen and Sword, but also alternates between entirely different styles of film. We have the modern-looking storyline, which details Mishima's last day on Earth as he plans a sort of coup with his personal army. We have the black-and-white flashbacks, shot like the old-school films of Schrader's idol, Ozu, who was one of the directors in that book. And then we have bright, colorful, stagey excerpts of three of Mishima's novels. All of these are woven together to make something closer to a collage of a life, as opposed to, say, walk the line. Taste Buds, let's start here. How did Schrader's Mishima Mishmashing add to, or take away from, telling the story of Mishima? I, so many times when people make biopics, they do that. we got to shove in their whole life, and that tends to walk the line in a way eh. where we say, be bad, not uh, walk the line and, and do it talentedly. Right. And so the ones that work are like, here's a weekend in Robert Plant's life. And you're like, oh, cool. I, I like that. Where this is still covering so much Mishima's life, but it's like, okay, but fuck the events of his life. What are the themes of his life? And I've never seen that in a biopic. What are the themes he marinated on, and how can we show that in a film? And, I mean, it, it, it separates the artist from his art to show you that that's kind of a false 
dichotomy. Because mm-hmm. if you want to really know about Mishima, why watch any movie about him? The dude wrote 70 books. Like, yeah. he will tell you what his... It, and obviously, now, looking back at his life, we can see how the things he put in those books actually really did inform his thinking and make him as a person. And so when we are shown his major thematic ideas staged as the dramas they are and not as the things he said in real life his real life is actually kind of boring and drab compared to the very like taut world of his novels highly um you know artistic and Mm -hmm. and very stylized and everything well but like as far as his life goes i mean i know that nobody can live a life like what they write, what fiction is po- was capable of, but d- didn't it seem in a lot of ways stranger than fiction? Like in the flashbacks, wh- where we get where we have this very odd um, grandmother takes over him as a kid, and then is very weird family dynamic. Oh yeah, far Too more abusive. Yeah, far more abusive than whatever his mom was doing. And I think this does create a sense in when we get the excerpts of. Uh, sons and their maternal guardians maybe being a little bit too close. Uh, and then, uh, you know, fighting through all of these, like, stereotypes of who he is, which is sort of weak, sort of effeminate, trying to figure out what it means to be a man, and then having a personal army. Yeah. That seems like an exciting life. Yeah, see, I don't know if I would call his life drab. Well, it's – but see, let's keep in mind that he's creating a different level of fiction when he talks about this personal army – Really, look at those dudes. What is it like? Twenty guys that get dressed mm-hmm. up and 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 if you look at his mission, his mission is absolutely absurd. He's yeah. just going to go capture one military functionary and deliver one speech to one group of guys. And he, the thing he's calling for is to restore the emperor to the position of power. Mm-hmm. Something that, like throughout the history of Japan, the emperor hasn't even held power that often. Like it's it's generally been a ceremonial position. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an older Japanese version of Project Mayhem with less success and yeah. like less follow through. And I, I feel like it shows that he loses his touch with reality throughout life, or he never really had it because of the way he grew up. He thinks, well, I wrote about this, and that guy looks like a hero, so now I'll try to do the same thing. He seems to come to the conclusion that you should just do something. Like. Yeah. That, like, even, I mean, by the end of the, the movie, it seems like the, his feeling is you should just, cr- like, commit to one action and do something. Even if that thing isn't clearly articulated, what you're trying to get, it's still better to do something than to just talk about things. But I want to point out Schrader's Americanness here. Um, and we're going to get more in depth to it in it later. But, like, just right here, I got to give the movie a ton of credit for, in the modern day scenes, making me think that what's about to happen on this day in the full color modern uh-huh. day scenes is very important, uh-huh. yeah. very dramatic, and is definitely going to work. Yeah. And yeah. the the longer that you watch all parts of the movie, and this is what this is like, this speaks to how great the collage is. But the longer you watch all parts of the movie, from the black and white parts, the flashbacks to the excerpts from the books, um, you start to realize, oh no, I, I'm not sure if Yukio is going to be okay. And then the fourth chapter is just a heartbreaking explosion of or implosion of when you know, your morals and ethics and, like, your your big beliefs just fall all on top of you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely Chekhov's seppuku. Is that how you say it? However you, how do you say that word? Seppuku, Chekhov, yeah. Seppuku. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we see it in one of the stories, and then we see 
Mishima filming it, him filming it, like he gets it. They don't really explain what he's doing. This is what the collage does. You're like, okay, I guess it's part of his life. He's doing films now. And then so by the time you're like, well, yeah, he had to. I've seen it twice and it's fake. So, of course, he has to do it at the end. I mean, he was like as big as like Stephen King. He was like the premier authorial celebrity. So he's doing like stage productions, film productions, Mm -hmm. like so many speeches and books at this point. I mean, so much so that uh, Japan was really upset about this movie because of the portrait and particularly uh, Mishima's wife, but also the entire country uh, banned it because it portrays him potentially, probably, maybe as a homosexual. Yeah, I would say that I would. I heard that about the movie that that like it, they like wanted parts of it cut out because of that, and I would say the movie pretty unequivocally like comes to the conclusion that this is a gay guy. Yeah, I'm not like, sure what the confusion you, is. And like, do do they feel like they got the part out of it that they they wanted nobody to know about? He's like basically obviously a guy who loves men and and finds men attractive. Like they, it's yeah, not the happiest edited. he is is when he convinces because his celebrity to let them like train on an army base, not get trained by the army. He's running them through non drills. It looks yeah. like Andy and Michael Scott doing parkour and Dunder <laughs> Mifflin. Uh, and he's like, that's really the purest true happiest that I have ever been. And yeah, it, it's a fascinating take. I, that, I mean, that take on history is so annoying. Is like, uh, d- it's being real, so don't show that shit. Get that out of this country is so frustrating. The I think idea what- that we have a modern day in color section of the movie and then a black and white flashback is that is not super new. But the thing that I think that separates the movie is that each chapter of the f- or the first three of the four chapters, uh, the final, the fourth chapter is basically just the attempted coup but the first three chapters each have an excerpt a section from one of his novels and the way that they're filmed is almost like 1930s technicolor musical on a stage you know uh, everything is bold and bright and far it looks far different than anything else and sometimes they try to hide the fact it's on a stage and sometimes you can see benches move away and the tracks <laughs> that they move away yeah. on. like where or there's that is, one scene where the the crowd is just walking around in a circle around right. like the action. Yeah, I mean it's it's brought it's filmed Broadway in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, what was it like the first time we cut to that for you guys in your viewing experience, and then um, looking back at it now, how how effective was it? I was very surprised when it happened, and I would say when it first happened. I just my first impression was like okay this might be kind of a gimmicky thing that's going on here there had already been a lot of changes there had been a colored section a section in black and white and then this new like state but I would say you forget about that because of how engrossing the performances are mm-hmm. almost right away and then by probably the end of the golden pavilion thing I'm just as a viewer I'm just like okay no this is a good choice and then it, it the rest of the movie seems to confirm how helpful it is to have like the images of the it being staged to help us understand as viewers where we are in reality but also to help us understand that the movie is purporting to show one person's interaction with his own in like internal fictions that he that he creates it yeah it it would ring so false if they had scenes where like the, the Queen movie, didn't see it, but I know there's scenes where they're like, and I just think at some point we will rock you. And they're like, is that a song? And it transfers <laughs> like so many biopics are trying to like, see, this is what their real life did. And that's why their art did this. So for them to just dive purely into the art and be like, no, we are not saying he gave this speech. 
about beauty is power or a rotten tooth. We're just saying this is in the book, but that how to play with the ideas that he is thinking about all the time. It it reflects it in a really non-cheesy way while using tools that we do tend to think of as cheesy, but it's fucking gorgeous. Yeah, and I think there's a whole other point just on like Schrader's behalf by doing it this way because like the audience is supposed to say, what, what happened? This looks stupid and fake. His books are fake. Wait, no, I think that they might have some points and shine a light onto his real life. And Schrader's just saying like, yeah, see, like you could do that with really anybody, any artist. You could say, here's the fiction. It looks like fiction now. And we know it's fiction. We can all agree. Look at the colors. Look at the, you know, the, the extras walking around. But once we, you know, like come to terms with that, now what can we see? Now what can we like, uh, will reveal itself about the author? And then when you get to the granular, granular level of the performance, the performances are so real and living in those scenes. And so that helps it like there's not the broad stage acting mm-hmm. that would like sort of like mimic the, the staging of the scene. Instead, people are all very present in the scene. And I'm thinking specifically of the, the pink sort of like restaurant pagoda that they're sitting around where the crowd is just walking in a circle. Like some people are carrying a segmented thing that says bus stop. It's all <laughs> supposed to be like a very like almost like a dance number. But then the, they're, talk, they're having this conversation about, about the human body and about reproducing it through art. And it is like seriously sitting in a cafe listening to people just like talk. Yeah. And so that juxtaposition of like the, the, the hyper reality and then like the, just the very um, logical human conversations, uh, especially that guy's performance, the guy who comes in and um, is like, you know, you should kill yourself. If, if if your body is the most important thing, then at the height of your of your physical powers, you should kill yourself. That is such a well delivered line, and it turns out, hey, that's kind of an, like that's kind of an important idea in the rest of the action of the movie. And it's the, the, using these uh, story pieces is such an interesting way to plant those seeds without like it didn't change. It never changed the way I was thinking about the character of Mishima. Uh, like in in the Golden Pavilion, the the stuttering character who's like the main part of that story. At a certain point, he says like, "My name will be famous. I will be in headlines." It's real incel energy. Like nobody yeah. likes me, yeah. but like at no point was like, "Oh, the man Mishima thought like that." And then by the end, I'm like, "Holy shit! They told me so early yeah. on this was going to happen." Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and like, I mean, it's the it's the reverse of what you were talking about, Mike. It's the anti bohemian rhapsody Mm -hmm. of instead of saying i should kill myself and then run out and kills himself it's just all these seeds that you know all come in to feed a life you know to like uh i don't know highlight to be a foil to whatever your traits are and then your life plays out and all of these things from your past are part of it it's Mm -hmm. not it's never like i heard this one thing now my direct reaction will create history right all right guys we do have to take a break i am so sorry um, I do want to get uh, – we were supposed to get into Schrader as in American. Um, I'm going to try to find time for that later. But excellent job. We have to talk about the movie so we can build a Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. That's right, gentlemen. It's Mount Rushmore time. Every week on the show, we decide that presidents shouldn't get the only mountain – what if other stuff, mostly uh, focused around the year 1985, did? We have talked so much all season about the adults of 85. and that We talked about the hot girls. We talked well, no, about we, the hot boys. We talked about the hot boys, and we talked about the women who 
uh, respectfully dressed as if they were in 1985, <laughs> if I remember the segment correctly. Um, but what about the babies? Talk about the hot what babies. What about the babies? <laughs> Not the hot babies, Greg. I'm, I can't keep correcting babies. you like this. Uh, Ryan, I looked at some of the 85 babies, and some of them have grown up to be wonderfully yeah. attractive professional soccer players. They were ugly go- babies who turned into attractive adults. I'm going to go to Mike in the booth here. Uh, Mike, what are you looking for in an 85 baby? Uh, 85 baby, <laughs> I'm looking for, you know, like 10 fingers, 10 toes. We are, unfortunately, ebliest on this show. And uh, no, somebody somebody who's big pop, they were born in 85. That is a definite requirement. And then they are big in a pop culture now. They have to be relevant. That first one is the most important though, right? Born in 85? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's inarguable. You can't try to make up for how relevant they are if they're not from 85. <laughs> I'm also President Trump, it- not born in 85, but very relevant right now. Arguably relevant. I'm going to give you guys both a point right off the bat. Because this segment is called Rushmore Babies, and neither one of you have sung it to the tune of Muppet Babies, and I appreciate it. In that. my head the whole time. It's very yeah, hard not to yeah. right now. Now that you've said that, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm dying. Greg, you are the challenger. So you're up to give the Slammy D, who is the most relevant person today, Juniper 29th, 1920. Okay. That was born in 85. This might be a Greg special but she is certainly in our consciousness all the time lover or hater she gets a lot of attention her pussy tastes like pepsi cola it's lana del rey uh i like lana del rey so much and i feel like this is the perfect show to talk about lana del rey because mishima is a movie that says to us like if we have artistic expression from somebody do we need to hear from them as a person outside of that artistic expression and lana del rey is a perfect example of like don't talk to me about what she says when she's being interviewed please don't (laughs) i just i i just want to listen to her music a lot of it is about being crazy and weird so of course she's going to say some crazy and weird stuff Mm -hmm. um it's it's also uh, a good thing to bring up greg because uh she's very self-destructive and I would say Mishima is a yeah. pretty self-destructive artist. Yeah, well, it's she's one of these artists that like people are like, "Do you hear this weird thing she said?" Yeah, if you listen to her music, she's a troubled person. <laughs> she's told us for a decade. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna Mike. I'm gonna give Mike the point there because Mike, so far on the show, has not said this baby's pussy tastes like Pepsi Cola. <laughs> I was talking about the adult woman. And that's a lyric from one of her songs. Oh, I thought that was just the thing you knew from... Your, we don't crack into each other's personal lives either, so... <laughs> All right, okay, moving on. Took it too far. <laughs> Mike, I'm taking a point away from you. That's fair. Uh, that's on the baby pile. Mike, where, where are you going? Uh, I think somebody who's inarguably relevant today and was born in 85, to the point I was surprised just because she is such a, a powerhouse force in my head. A year older than me, they, they like, you can't be a powerhouse. You must be a real adult. But no, she's she's... In our peer group, uh, but crushes, modeling, twittering, being married to John Legend, uh, I think she is a powerful voice of the generation, is Chrissy Teigen. Chrissy Teigen. It is impossible to ignore her. Yeah. Uh, I'm giving it to you. Mike. She's going on the mountain. Yes. She's certainly iconic. She is as close, the John Legend, Chrissy Teigen couple is as close as any human couple's ever had, heterosexual couple, where the guy might be more attractive than the woman. It's very rare that you see that, but they maybe have done it. <laughs> they did it. They went there. 
Greg, yes. where are we going? John Legend. <laughs> um, okay, so that was a good one. Chrissy Teigen. There is another, There's another. like cute, sassy Twitter presence, Anna Kendrick. Uh, Anna Kendrick is like everybody's fun girlfriend. Uh, everyone wants to hang out with Anna Kendrick, hear her pop off. She's still like cute and adorable, but you could see her also falling down a set of stairs. Uh, she <laughs> like favorite. She's like you know both both charming and beautiful, but still somehow manages to have this like every woman quality, which is like Bullshit, if you if, right? if you really inspect that, you're like, well, no, it's just not. It's not every woman. She's like extremely talented. And she, yeah, but do you know what it is? She's five three. That really gives her that every person mentality. Yeah, She's real tiny. And you could see her falling down like a like a set of stairs. You <laughs> yeah, know? you've mentioned. Why do you yeah. keep mentioning that? Because I, she seems like a goof. Yeah, I see. She bringing that, that you actively are rooting for that. No, like a like a Chevy Chase, you know, Gerald Ford style fall down the ladder. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer, <laughs> fall, fall off a stage. <laughs> fall right off a stage. A uh, Mr. Belvedere oh, no. <laughs> sit right on her Mr. Belvedere style sit right on her nuts and have to stop filming for a little bit. Anna Kendrick, this is what we think of you. You're <laughs> on the mountain. Congratulations. All right, two spots in. Mike, can you get the third? Uh, I, I want to. I don't know. You do want to, yes. I do, I do <laughs> the whole want to. segment. Um, <laughs> it's it's. I, I think in this day and age, to I, I know I'm not the athlete kind of guy, I, but but I feel like it. We would be remiss for one of the greatest American athletes. Uh, his neck is constantly weighed down with all the gold he won, and then he quit because he went, "Weed is cool, and I don't want to swim all the time." I think Michael Phelps uh, deserves to be talked about. That guy was born in '85. Yeah, crazy, right? Wow, that limbs that long could be born then. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I don't. When Mike says it, it sounds stupid. Was that a, was that what I was actually I think thinking? That's what you were thinking. Um. Okay. So not super relevant to 2020, but no? I see your point. Uh, I'm gonna put it on the maybe pile. He's not even our best swimsman anymore. But I'm not gonna talk about Ryan Lochte. He wasn't born in 1985. I don't think. Oh yeah, that rule again. <laughs> we're really Greg, observing we that one. <laughs> okay. So now it's to me again. Hmm. Hmm. This is interesting. Okay. We can hear you typing on Google right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me say, say, born <laughs> in 1985, enter. Hmm. I'm going to say Gal. Is it Godot or Got It? I think you got it. Got Mike. it. Oops. Sorry. Hey. Hey. <laughs> what are you doing? Greg gets, Greg gets two points for Gal Gadot. Uh, she made... DC movies cool again. Um, she is pretty and really like uh, pulled off the Wonder Woman character of like you know I, I I come from a small town that's nothing like this and uh, I think about that line where she like eats ice cream in Paris or whatever and she like marches back to the guy and she's like your ancestors are super proud of the job that you did. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to bring up though that uh, with. WW84, <laughs> which I can't believe we had 83 w- World Wars. W- <laughs> uh, probably moving to 2021. The most 2020 thing that she did was probably be a, a large part, if not the total captain of the Imagine video. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's very iconic Well, in 2020. Since, since quarantine started, she and Chrissy Teigen both kind of got canceled. It's like, 
if you're a celebrity right now, maybe lay low. Yeah. Anna Kendrick, still perfect. Well, she's just Anna making still weird quibby shows with that sex doll, so everybody's like, she's not doing well. Lars she, and the Real Boy? Yeah. And for the past couple of weeks, she's been falling downstairs a lot. <laughs> so don't forget oh, that. To gain back okay, that hold trust. on. Hold on. In the trailer for her quibby sex doll show, she falls downstairs. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. So that's this what, is that's not just this is based on. <laughs> this is not just a thing that you made up. Yeah, did it sound like I was repeatedly like, threatening to push her downstairs or something? <laughs> so. yeah. She's my neighbor and I'm gonna get her. What a creepy energy I must have at all times. Anything <laughs> that I'm threatening to push a celebrity downstairs. <laughs> okay, Gal Gadot is on the mountain. Greg, you got two points for that. Mike accidentally got one. Oh. Mike, there's one <laughs> spot left. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do one shout out that it, she's bigger in our group specifically to a late great friend of ours, but uh, she just only makes good albums. I think one came out earlier this year, if not last year. Uh, Carly Rae, Carly Rejection, eighty four, ba- eighty five, baby. Carly Rejection. <laughs> Carly Rejection. Carly Rejection. <laughs> Thank you, Bradley Cooper from A Star Is Born. <laughs> White. You're, you're just ugly. <laughs> she's just fucking Carly. You're not you're not as pretty as Carly Rejection. Uh, okay. Uh, we're gonna do one. Greg, do you have any more? Yeah, I got two more. One, more. one of them is is a non-starter. So I'm gonna give you this guy. Uh, I did not know before I saw Hamilton that the character of the king is like so loved, but he is played by Jonathan Groff, who mm-hmm. also plays um, like the real quirky F- FBI investigator in Mindhunter. Jonathan and, Mindhunter. And. Uh, He's very good, and he was born in, in so 85, good. and he's really having a moment right now. And seeing Hamilton streaming, it taught me that this guy spits a lot. Oh, yeah. That's why that's he's like having a moment. Thing. People are like, spit me right in my face, King George. Yeah. This guy is really – you think that I'm exaggerating, but it, it's like the camera's right in his face, and you can see a mouthful of spit come out several times. Disney? I've only recently heard about this Hamilton. Do you mean spits flow? Like spits hip-hop yeah. rap lines? That's what King yeah. George is known for. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Disney wanted to edit it out, and Lin Manuel Miranda said, "You're not. We will not put on your. Do not do that. We'll, we'll I'll take edit. out the two fucks, but not I will never spit. take the spit." Mike, one more. Uh, one more. Uh, okay, that's so Raven Simone. She was born in 1985. <laughs> that's a pretty. Good, that's a good pitch. That is a good pitch. Also born in 85, Cristiano Ronaldo. Amanda Seyfried. Are we just shooting stuff out now? Cristiano Ronaldo. Greg, let's look, remember who the host is here. He, uh, but let me just say this about him: he looks like a bad guy from an anime about like high schoolers. He seriously <laughs> so is handsome. drawn evil. Yeah, he's very handsome, but like in such an austere, sharp way mm-hmm. that it's very like sharp very sharp brows, very sharp hairline. Yeah, and it's like so unfriendly. I mean, he's very obviously he's he's attractive, but it's just he looks evil. You're no boys allowed. <laughs> Rushmore Babies Mountain of 1985 is Chrissy Teigen, Anna Kendrick, Gal Gadot, and Greg. And Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, my God. And Lana Del Rey. When we come back, more about Mashima. (laughs) Well, that is very, very funny or very sad. And perhaps now you have something to think about or very problematic. And perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to. So why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter and find us at Your Pop Filter. Email contacts at Your Pop Filter. Hey, everybody. Keep watching them movies. 
I want to talk about one of my favorite words with movies. It's the D word. It's desire. I think it's an important one. And I want to talk about what does Mishima desire and what does Paul Schrader sort of desire from us. But first, let's get to Mishima. The character, the, the human, the man, the real person, the person this biopic is made for or about, what does he actually desire, do we think, based on the snippets of his life and his art that we see? I think he wants, when he's sitting alone and it's midnight and the, the kettle is boiling over and he's so immersed because like flowing out of him is just this completely realized world of high drama. And I think what he wants is he wants those moments where he is just alone and that's happening to somehow be like with the rest of humanity at the same time. And he sees that as his words becoming like actions. And if he could start a movement, then he could share in this profound moment he has where he contemplates the golden pavilion or where he thinks about the ultimate sacrifice or he thinks about like the terribleness of beauty and, but he doesn't want to be alone when he does it. He wants to be with people and, and he can't, make that a reality he can't get that drama he can't get that those crazy strings uh, playing that you hear in all the the novel sections he can't get that out in the world he it's it's not a real thing but he wants it so bad he wants that drama he wants that energy Um, i just finished the fx show devs and so much of it is about how um silicon valley these tech god lords they like they they sort of go crazy and they start thinking of themselves as messiahs and sort of like bigger than humanity. And then watching Mishima, and it's not a typical biopic, but in a lot of ways it is because it is so much like all of these rock and roller biopics that we've seen before, where you start believing the hype and you start thinking that your words mean more and you want you want to sort of like be in control of what, people think about you and then eventually what other people think period that it's totally there and just like it is in rocket man about elton john or anything else yeah it is it's said almost more than a lot of other biopics that he wants to be remembered he wants to go down in flames like the golden pavilion all all of his protagonists in his stories the the guy in key kyoto's house Mm -hmm. uh, kyoko's house uh talks about uh that they don't even know that art's a shadow. Stage blood is never enough. Like he's saying, like I know this isn't enough. It has to be real blood. So he's like, how do I blend the beauty of my words with actual action? Uh, real, real quick, Mike, as we go through this, we'll do it. Uh, can you sort of? So Kyoko's house is one of the excerpts that we see. Can you sort of describe it for us? Yeah, Kyoko's house is about a very vain younger man uh, who's like my face is beautiful but my body isn't there why can't my body just be my whole face uh who has a weird relationship with his mom who ends up sleeping with the landlord so his mom doesn't lose her coffee shop and gets in a weird uh like violent bds she like owns him yeah he signs a contract it's almost like a 50 shades of gray thing at first not like she manipulates him into like him becoming her slave she literally has a contract where she owns this kid and uh, keeps his face beautiful, but then destroys his body for him. With, yeah. It looks like razors and punches. Yeah, she says, your skin's so beautiful, I just had to cut it. He's like the golden do. pavilion yes. for her. Like, he's so beautiful that she just Great. wants to destroy him. And then 
there I, I think we get a synthesis then between where he wants to be both the guy who destroys the golden pavilion and the golden pavilion or the the kid the attractive kid from the second mm-hmm. part he wants to be both things at the same time the sacrifice and the sacrificer and that's which like, all it all comes to this thing where that a lot of the movie talks about in uh, Mashima's real life and his stories of your beauty will be destroyed. Also, you have no control in life. So why don't we kill two birds and take control over how your beauty is destroyed instead of just letting old age do it, do it with either making money on it or, you know, by committing suicide. But at least you have some control of saying, uh, I'm not going to leave an old corpse. I'm mm-hmm. going to control h- when and how my beauty is. And that's shown in, in Runaway Horses, again, which is the last one in Chapter 3 action, which is uh, about a – he's the best fighter in college. Like, he's the best on sword team, and he quits because he's too good. He's the best fighter in college. <laughs> and the coach he's is like, top oh, kendo you're, guy. you're only thinking about yourself. And he, this guy, this completely fictional guy, gets a private army to start killing anybody who opposes <laughs> the emperor – uh, completely fictional, and then when his contact in the army gets transferred, he's like, forget it, everybody just go home, I'm going to kill myself anyway. And there's a quote in that one that says, if you turn your life into a line of poetry uh, written in a splash of blood, and then he c- commits seppuku. Like, it's again, all of this is like, control yourself, flame out hard, James Dean this shit. But see, then when when you like, you watch that moment in the book, and it's got the strings and everything. Uh, and it feels like, and it's on the set, it feels like such an artistic, like, crazy, intense moment. And then they show the moment of Mishima's actually, like, forging his army. And it's like, yeah. we're all going to poke a little bit of blood out of our finger. And then he's like, I hope nobody has VD here. And it's just like, yeah, the, the, his real world is, like, he's trying to recreate this, like, intensity that he only experiences mm-hmm. in his own fictions. And, like, he, yeah, part of it, too, kid. is that, He's definitely a theater kid, and that's because there's when we see the flashbacks, he has this like crazy stutter, which one of his characters does as well. And then when we get to modern day, there's no stutter, and instead it's like that sort of smarmy, like <laughs> like sort of I say jokes that aren't funny, but yeah. people laugh whether to like break the uncomfortability or because you know like we admire you. The force of his personality but, at this point, right? It's just like it makes everything he says funny, and he thinks I've now achieved like being a hero like i've done it i am now a legend in my own book that my real life is it's it's interesting in one of the later flashbacks because it is like adult mishima but it's black and white which took a second i was like how where are we uh he he is talking to a group of it's a room full of dudes and they're arguing about politics and things and some of them sort of laugh at him but for the most part they are screaming at him the whole time and he is struggling you can see like he is trying to fully forge become the version of him like that charismatic guy who can run a room but this is showing you that reality that he never – I don't know if he ever fully does it. It is the power of his art gets him – he's so mad that it's his art that gets him respect and not his speech, it feels like, throughout the movie. Yeah. But the only time that he gets the reaction that he wants is when he's surrounded by – and the movie uses this word a lot – acolytes. And if it's yeah. just if it's just normal-ass people – and I don't know, like this does ring true today with some of our leaders – if it's just normal ass people voicing their opinion just based on the words that you're saying, they're like, that's not funny and it's stupid. Are you yeah. insane? It's weird that it's not enough for him just to be like a, a teacher. It's a shame because you the moments where he is profoundly, purely happy, it's just him and his boys and they're all hanging out and they just did a good march or they just did some like really <laughs> cool tumbles. And he like like that's that's perfection yeah. for him. 
there's no reason why they couldn't go do marching and talk about how much they love the emperor. It's just he is so afraid, I guess, of of the slow like descent into death that mm-hmm. he wants to do something really crazy. But it's really more than anything else. He just wants to die before. I guess things get bad. He gets old. Yeah, it's before it gets bad. It's like before the wool is taken. Like people realize he is not his art. Uh, but like each the each of the chapters is is what beauty, art, action, and then yeah, the harmony. harmony of pen and sword. And in each one, he's saying you can't words deceive one way, and actions aren't deceitful. But you can't. It people don't take it seriously. Like, and so the harmony of pen and sword uh, is he's saying death can death is the only thing that combines art and action because for men beauty is death. And that's artistic. Like it's it's all. I think the movie is great, and he is a fascinating character. But what emo boy theater kid bullshit? But like that's another thing about these types of people, whether you want to call them theater kids or messiahs, is I have spent my life philosophizing about what the rules are. I've accepted mm-hmm. them, and now I'm going to break them. They don't apply to me though. I'm going to be able to go out there and uh, convince these people with the pen, you know, that like words and actions can, you know, live together or whatever. And the, his face, like, it's heartbreaking when he realizes that, no, bro, it's just not going to happen I, for you. See, I, I don't know if he actually expects it to work, though, because in his own story, uh, he t- like, the guy's plan, they know for sure it's not going to work. Basically, it amounts to just stabbing one rich guy. And his whole plan, Mishima's plan, was to go deliver this speech and then, you know, commit ritualistic suicide. So I feel like he knew already that it wasn't going to work, and that makes it even more sort of like like maybe what what Mike said, drama kid. Like you knew this wasn't like this plan was nothing. It was never going to come to anything. It was never going to change anybody's mind or end any differently than it did. It was I, I honestly when with so much of the movie being really high flung, beautiful artistic shots and everything most of this thing is really embarrassing. It's people f- tripping yeah. and falling over. Everyone's like Anna Kendrick. Everything is like a, a, a set of stairs. <laughs> falling over couches. Yeah. And, yeah, but like it's not it's not honorable. Like the the there's one part where a guy gets like his hand sliced with a sword and the look on his face is just like, did you just fucking slice me with a sword? <laughs> and it's it's all such a charade and it's all so empty and hollow. You know, you can see that on the, the non-emperor, who's the guy in charge, when he's tied to the chair. The, the general. general, the general, like you know, Rise we just up. think that we just think that seppuku is like this very common thing that happens every day in this culture, and he's tied in the chair, being like, "Don't do this, yeah. dude." Y- Even his though his you attacked me, don't kill yourself. Earlier in the insane. movie, the earlier in the movie, Mishima turns to one of his guys and he's like, "Hey, if the general tries to commit seppuku, don't let him because it's my day." And it's like, did <laughs> yeah. you see that guy? He's a businessman. He's like, I mean, he's a, obviously he is in the army, but he's basically just like a mid-level functionary. That guy's not going to commit ritual yeah. suicide. <laughs> and and he even like that guy doesn't take any of it seriously because when they first wrap like a uh, garrote around his neck to start tying him to chair, he's just like, are you guys joking? Like yeah. they are being violent. With is him. this he's a just drill? Like, this is weird. You guys are being wacky. <laughs> this is such a good realistic stage show, but I would like the stage show to be over, please. This is too accurate for me. And in a weird way, in those movie, in those moments, the movie is like, isn't this guy pathetic? Like the, he's yeah. just letting himself be tied up. This is supposed to be like it, Mishima's whole point is we don't have like a warrior spirit anymore, and it's like, well, it's maybe it's a good idea to have a little bit of a warrior spirit and not just let people like wrap a rope around your neck while you go like are you guys being serious but but it is interesting think about if stephen king and a bunch of like 
dudes w- rolled in and like started doing it, you'd be like, this is funny. Like, well, I don't know what's going on at all. Like it is, it, but having relating with that puts it in such a funnier perspective. Like, yeah, I'm like, okay, what, what, what horror story are we in now, Steven? It is, that is it's a not- very real thing. People will think something going on is a joke very late right. into it just as like a defense mechanism. I think us watching this movie is still a prank on me, and I don't know when you guys are going <laughs> to jump out of the closet. I, it's also it's so strange to watch a movie with a protagonist that is an artist and homosexual and philosophical and deep feeling and complex and a fucking straight up conservative. Yeah, like that. Yeah. None of that like gels with the type of movies that we watch today. Where like you really just don't get conservatives unless they are super super evil. And we also for America, when we say conservative, we mean like people who had the values of like fifty years ago. He's a conservative yeah. in the sense he has values hundreds, like hundreds. a thousand years ago, dude. <laughs> Uh, we have to take a break. But when we come back, we are going to probably, maybe, I don't know. It's It's been slim pickings recently. Uh, maybe get somebody into the Pop Filter Hall of Fame. That's right, gentlemen. We are now in the hallowed halls of the Pop Filter Hall of Fame, where such recent inductees uh, have the first name Michael and the last name Jordan. (laughs) Do you guys think that'll ever happen again, where two similar names people will get in at the same time? I think if it lines up, we should do it. (laughs) Okay. Even if we don't like them. If we get the chance. These ha- these halls are only technically hallowed, right? They're not literally hallowed because I shouldn't be here if they are. Yeah, I mean, witches and vampires cannot stand on the okay. ground here. Okay, you know what? I'm just gonna I'll stand out here and sit. shout. Unrelated. Into... <laughs> yeah, it's not about anything. I just like being outside now since Corona and everything. Greg, going first gives you almost no advantage. In fact, I think it's a disadvantage. <laughs> so, Mike, you're up first as the champion. Who do you think should be in the Pop Filter Hall of Fame? Uh, when I was thinking about this, it is so shocking this person is not in the Hall of Fame that I'm constantly worried they are already, and I just can't find it on the walls or in their statues. Uh, Tina Fey is in the Hall I of Fame. I know for a fact Tina Fey is in it. I won't be burnt <laughs> again by Tina. Yeah. But I, I think for not just who we are, for the the kinds of nerdy kids we were, for the kinds of film lovers we are, and for the kind of movie we currently make, and everybody who makes movies, uh, we talk about him. He is so good that he doesn't even have to make his own movies, a la Goonies. Uh, it's bananas that the famous hat wearer himself, Steven Spielberg, is not in the Hall of Fame. Oh, well, yeah, I, th- I thought we just weren't going to do like blatantly obvious, of course, would be in the Hall of Fame people. <laughs> but no, well, I'll, I'll write him down. He's we'll so good that, that he in. won't be voted in. This is crazy. I'm just bad at this game, I guess. Well, I mean, Martin Scorsese, Alfred Hitchcock, there's a lot of people. I thought this was personal to us. Do you think that the three of us discovered Steven Spielberg? I think we Esteban discovered Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, yeah. Not like Michael Jordan, that little cult hero. You're right. I was going to say our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> okay, so uh, Mike, top three Steven Spielberg movies? My top three Steven Spielberg movies right now? Greyhound? Yeah. 
What's the other Kay. World War II ones? Greyhound 2, Greyhound 3. Greg, I guess I that. would say top Spielberg movie would probably be E.T. Okay. And then... I'm going to give you a point if it matches right. with my top three. Okay. Uh, Wait, and so a point for each one that matches? Yep. Next would be Schindler's List. Uh-huh. Okay, no point there. That's good. Uh, and I don't know. Am I allowed to hop in here? Yeah, you jump in there, dude. Jaws Jurassic Park. Oh, God. Mike. Okay, you guys are missing two of my top three. There's two more. Wait. Because Jaws was the one that made it, right? It's Jaws. E- I have four of my top three, Mike. Do you want to Yeah, that's that? what I was. Thank you for knowing <laughs> what I was confused about. <laughs> okay, so there's like we a submit. pairing movie. You submit? We submit. Ryan. Ryan. It's uh, Raiders and Close Encounters. Greg. Yes. Steven Spielberg has been put on the table. Yeah. And then we covered him with sushi. Okay. Who would you like to nominate? I almost thought Mike had stolen mine because I had to check several times to see if this person is in the Pop Filter Hall of Fame. And it's going to be ridiculous if we if we put this person in, but I want to anyway. I have been going back and reading old comics, um, and but not like super old from like 10 years ago because when you're not in the flow anymore. And I have started reading uh, Spider-Gwen, and she crossed his path with Miles Morales. And I was like, man, I've never actually read that many Miles Morales comics and miles morales is so cool you guys um it's such a hard thing to do to have to like swap out who the main character is in a comic and i know that it hasn't turned out that like only miles morales is spider-man not just the main character the single greatest fictional character in the history of humanity and And miles morales had to take that spot and he really does it very effectively he's Mm -hmm. a like a better spider-man he's a more interesting character and um it he's funny and his life is more interesting than peter parker's life is it's weird peter parker has not been in many of the miles morales comic books i've read and you don't like miss him it's just it it, miles morales really at this point feels way more like spider-man than peter parker does i mean it helps out that peter parker died and miles came in in a non-616 situation mm-hmm. where everybody can sort of relax about it you yeah. know and be like oh but it's not real <laughs> like, this these other real spider-man <laughs> <laughs> like this other thing is real uh but still even that being said like bendis has done the best peter parker writing of probably my lifetime with ultimate spider-man and then to come in and like double down on that with miles morales was yeah. very very impressive a different kind of funny nervous kid bendis is yeah huh? I said a different kind of funny, nervous kid. Like, it's not like he's definitely in the vein of spider people of the kind of kid, but he has his own voice than Peter. Also, but he's when- really fun to watch in, like, I I don't really, like, follow, like, the big things that are going on in Marvel, but he will kind of, like, stand and talk to the other superheroes that are, like, his age. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny to, like, they really, Marvel has done a very good job of establishing a second tier or like a a younger group of superheroes that are so interesting him and ms marvel Mm -hmm. and gwen stacy like the kids table at at marvel right now is actually the way more interesting place but it's fun to watch it in the comics be the kids table you know i wish there was a way at marvel to have miles morales be have like electric powers you know or speed powers and not 
sort of have every single new character be a version of an older character. Yeah. But that's just not where the money flows. Like the Venom Strike is kind of like electric powers. That is true, yeah. And invisibility yeah. on top of that. Invisibility's dope. I, like, I can't wait for the video game for PS5 because you can just be invisible. I'm going to do that all the time. Go into girls' locker rooms. Nope, all right. Nope, nope, nope. That's red a real flag. 85 energy. That's a red flag. <laughs> uh, I can't believe that my nominee wasn't in the Hall of Fame. I looked <laughs> over and over and over again. But uh, what we're I, doing now. When I think about the kind of people that we are, uh, the kind of people that, like, not just but that when we were kids together, all with the same heads but very smaller bodies, um, who was our role model? And then it was somebody who, like, taught us that being a doctor was cool. And then as we grew up and we got big, we got famous, there was somebody who gave us the exact response of what ha- what you say when you did get big. Oh, now Zoidberg is big, <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> My nominee is Dr. Zoidberg. <laughs> and I- I can't believe he's not in the Pop Filter Hall of Fame. <laughs> uh, for context, for those of you who don't remember, uh, in that episode, there is a big rampaging monster. And so they use a like enlargement ray to make Zoidberg big. And that's, he says that instantly. As soon as he's big, he says, now Zoidberg's big. And he just runs off in the other direction, also <laughs> destroying the town. <laughs> it's, never, it just, it's never explained why. It's just once they made him big, he was like, yep, now I'm going to fucking mess stuff up. So now Zoidberg is big, huh? The first thing he did was fight Chase Bank <laughs> to, to get rid of his debts. He's and then he, yeah, he just people. ran away. He ran away with his sandals and his like doctor apron on his doctor um, apron. i laugh I, literally every time he walks into the scene mm-hmm. and he does the scuttling uh-huh. like i never got over that well, humorous. <laughs> i think he is uh, i think he's a champion of comedy i do not think that we would be the people that we are if it wasn't for one dr zoidberg and i'm gonna put him up against these two and win because i'm the host and that's how it works We'll see what happens. Uh, all right. So my pick was Dr. Zoidberg. Mike's was Steven Spielberg. Uh, a lot of Bergs up here. And Greg was Miles Morales. Berg. Okay. So we're going to start the vote with Steven Spielberg. Let's keep in mind, gentlemen, you always forget that we have two votes. We only each have two votes for all three of the people. And it must be unanimous for them to get in. I've been hoarding my votes. I didn't vote the last two. So I actually have four votes this time. <laughs> <laughs> Greg. Yes. Do you do you think that wait Steven Spielberg? Do you think that Steven Spielberg should get in? Uh, I say yes, and if not him, then his cheap Mexican non-union <laughs> replacement, Senor Spielberg. Uh, yeah, I mean, remember '85 is the year that um, the Adventure Show was on, or what was it called? Crazy Tales. The Steven oh, Spielberg. Uh, astounding yeah, Tales. Amazing Stories. St- which is still the most astounding story of all is that that show did not work. Uh, it had a bunch of celebrity. But, yeah, who would we be without Steven Spielberg? Okay, Mike? Yes. I'm torn. Yeah, Natalie and Brulia. This seems like such a cheat to me, but I guess I'll say yes. Maybe next week we can have, like, Barack Obama. I think it's weird, this notion that there is something above the Hall of Fame, which is a class of people that we're not supposed to. This was Mike's pitch. This is how Mike pitched the Hall of Fame. Is that it's people who aren't in typical Hall of Fame. But you broke it, and Michael Jordan's in it, so now there's no rules. Michael Jordan's in the movie Hall of Fame. You dumb dipshit. This is the everything Hall of Fame. I think it's us. I think that 
it's what you know, makes. I'm taking my vote back. He's not getting in. Oh. You can't do that. You wrote it down. Oh, really? What are the rules? What, how are the rules that I can't take it back? Yeah, he could really do whatever he wants. This is terrible. Well, you know what? We'll censure you. I vote to censure him. Yeah. Do you vote, Mike? I vote censured. I, I vote yeah, to censure. Yeah, you censure. censure means. <laughs> you're censured, Ryan. It means you ask me like where I live and how old I am. <laughs> it takes like five minutes. You should do it. It means we're not going to do anything. That's what it means. All right. Next up is Miles Morales. Mike, where are you going? Yes. Greg? Miles Morales is so cool. Yes, a million times. Son of a bitch. Greg. Yeah, Mike. Congratulations to <laughs> Steven Spielberg and Miles Morales. And no congratulations to you two fucking butt nuggets for ignoring Dr. Zoidberg and cheating. Greg, Greg I didn't think you cheated, but I just want to throw that in there. Greg, Mike. I, I did. I'm sorry that we're not going to see the Zoidberg exhibit. He's that part. Massive. Yeah. The. Like, that was the first thing when you pitched it. The first thing I thought was, oh, God, I don't think I'm going to vote for him, and that means I'm not going to get to see the cool statue. And just so you know, there is a uh, one exhibit that has Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm, and that exhibit now stands for Pop Filter Hall of Famer Jeff Goldblum, Pop Filter Hall of Famer Jurassic Park, <laughs> Pop Filter Hall of Famer Michael Crichton, and Pop Filter Hall of Famer Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so that is a lot of weight there. And then, Miles Morales, you will get your bust soon. When we come back, more about Mishima. Hey, guys, real quick before we get back to the rest of the show, I just wanted to tell you about yourpopfilter.com. Go to that website to get everything that is Pop Filter, all of our podcasts, all of our articles, all of our secrets. Everything is on yourpopfilter.com. While you're there, go to yourpopfilter.com slash Amazon. And if you make that your new Amazon bookmark, then you can help Amazon less and us more. And isn't that what we all want to do in the world? Some of those podcasts that you can get on the website or in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your shows uh, include the Superhero Hour Hour, where Cassie, Mike, and I discuss every single TV show based on a comic book, and the OCD, where Mike and I discuss every episode of the OCD. And then, of course, Movie of the Year where Greg, Mike, and I try to figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. So make sure you're downloading all of those shows. Leave a review. Leave a star rating. Leave a podcast. If you have an idea for an episode, just record it and email it to us, and we'll probably put it on the air. Thanks. Bye. Both the text and the subtext of this film, and it's Mishima, in case you forgot from the Hall of Fame segment, are riddled with obvious and obscure references to sex and death. Are the two combined, and how well does the movie explore each one? And hold on, let me just say, let's start with sex. <laughs> let's start with sex. Well, it's hard to start with one. Like, it's hard to just do one, because, I mean, the, the very initial thing is, like, when he's a little kid and he sees this image of, like, a martyr. And I'm not even, do you guys know who that is? It wasn't Jesus, right? Had arrows and everything, so it was Saint Sebastian, which he then. Cr- th- this was like his. He said, "Like I don't know what my hand is doing. Oh, oh, g- yeah. oh no!" And now he is masturbating to this picture of this saint who is he like he has his arms up like he's hanging from a tree or something, and then he's riddled with arrows. And did you notice when he was like not when he actually 
stabbed himself, but when he's like doing the movie version where he's got like the sword, when he was kind of like practicing stabbing him, it's that same motion. He's like hunched over and he's like moving his hand up oh, and down shit. in that same like masturbatory motion. And there's a there's a photo shoot. Like once he gets famous, when you get famous, you have to go on photo shoots. I think that becomes your entire life. And they they do that same tableau. Like he just he poses like Saint Sebastian. Everybody's uh-huh. like, all right, if you want to do this, and he's like, no, I. I want to do this Trust all the me. way, and and that that same Saint Sebastian is flashed again when he says the line like women can chase beauty, but when men chase beauty, it's only death, and it just like Fight Club style, just like boom. Remember that picture? Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 this connects to this thing right here. I love when movies help you out like that. <laughs> yeah, like, and then that that picture is like recreated several times through the imagery. That is like a very explicit version, but also when he first gets cut. Uh, in the in Kyoko's house, when she's like bathing his body, mm-hmm. and um, his like smooth skin, she cuts it with a razor. She cuts him like in in the side, kind of in like a Christ-like area mm-hmm. where he got stabbed with the spear, and that's like a very like Pieta his position, both in that scene and in the the the, the, the Saint Sebastian painting, has like that feeling of Christ being taken off the cross. Everyone always talks about those nails through the hands and the crown of thorns, but not enough people talk about that spear right through the fucking side. Right in the side. Yeah. The guy and who, then, like, can't watch it anymore. He's just like, oh. <laughs> um, but it, 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 it seems like it's hard to separate the two, and it reminded me of almost like a, a Freudian interpretation where what he's really seeking is the oblivion that is offered in the desire for sex and then the desire for death. And he just has combined both of those things. I think they're usually seen as kind of like being oppositional. But for him, they're the same. He wants to just cease either sexually or his actual life. So it's not about what he desires. It's about the destruction of desire, which is that's always such like a destructive path for any protagonist. Like Uh if that's what you're going to set out on, you're going to fail. And it's probably going to end in both. And it is because he sees beauty in sex and beauty in death and the whole thing is, is beauty too powerful and overwhelming? That's why the in the Golden Pavilion, the stuttering guy, when he gets a chance to have sex, the the Golden Pavilion zooms in way back. So, like, yeah. her, her naked breasts and the Golden right. Pavilion are the same. This is too overwhelming beautiful. So he burns the Golden Pavilion down. And yeah, then, because he can't, like, he, there is something to him about beauty that taunts yes. the, 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 the brief existence of man. Beauty being eternal is like an insult towards the temporarily, you know, the temporary nature of man. But I also think it's too much focus on beauty. It, like the girl that he is, who's saying like, no, no, I don't care that you stutter. We about to have sex. And uh-huh. she, he, he freaks out like he can't do it. He, you know, is overcome with all the stuff. And she's like, dude, stop caring about beauty so much. Like at a certain <laughs> point you do have to like, there has to be some action. You do have to well, live your life. Well, that's the thing. Like if you're overwhelmed by beauty, there's a... <laughs> There's a naked chick right here, man. Like, yeah. you are so missing the moment because of, like, this eternal idea of beauty. Mm-hmm. It's Ricky Fitz. It's Thora Burt saying, dude, I will have sex with you. I think you're a hot nerd. And him saying, no, look at that plastic bag floating yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the obsession with the philosophy of things. And it's saying it, this person is always like, aren't I better? And there's definitely that vibe from young Mishima throughout. He's like, oh, these people don't like me. I don't need friends because they are less than. But it's a fear it's I just like thinking about it, but it's a fear of actual action, which is the whole movie. He's like, I'm good with words, but fuck, I'm not great at doing right. things. And yeah, I mean, like that's the plight of so many artists is that like there's this, you know, the like 
I don't know, there's hesitation of, uh, you know, like you're basically, you're frozen in place trying to find perfection instead of being like, this is cool. This is, this is B plus. This is all right. You just mm-hmm. like, you're so overwhelmed yeah. and you're so looking, you're overwhelmed and you're still looking for the perfect thought or the perfect word or th- whatever. That's the ultimate tragedy. I think of this story is that he begins to hate the thing that he is like exceptional at. Yeah. A- right. And so much of the movie right. is a meditation on the fact that he hates the one thing that he does better than almost anyone who's ever lived. And man, that is just a way to drive yourself absolutely, absolutely crazy. And I guess it does. It leads to his destruction because he began to be so comfortable with words that he just absolutely hated them. And he wanted something that to be like, just to be anything different, but then mm-hmm. his, his great ability to craft language. And as someone who like has not written one book to hear someone who's written like 50, be like, all I'm good at is writing books. Well, that's that's a good thing to be good at, though. Yeah. All I'm good at is nothing. So yeah. <laughs> at least you got that thing. <laughs> but yeah, like I think the other thing too is um, just never being able to see the. This is a common thing in you know stories about any sort of artist is uh, it's hard for us to see the real Mishima because it's hard for him, you right. know. And yeah. so it's always performative at all times, and then you just get lost, and then you go a little insane because. When he is in front of a group of people, when he's cracking jokes and, you know, like everybody's laughing, that he likes that, but it, he knows it's performative. And then you sort of forget what performative isn't. And then what right. do you, where do you go from there? And, I mean, like, I guess the only time I felt like he wasn't being performative was those moments we talked about earlier where he's just sitting around with his squad and but that's a squad of friends that he hired to be his that's friend. true yeah, yeah he's that's definitely playing point. the role of like wise military leader it took me so much in the movie like wait he has no actual training like i he, mean he bails out like and yeah he's like, think i thought about i wanted that. to die for honor but i pretended to have tb that's so crazy like the, he never got over that he did that obviously yeah. like that was just and i guess that one of the major points of the movie is that these things happen to us when we're young and we never get over them and he's still probably like you know 17 18 at that time but knowing the where he ends up in his life to see him, mm-hmm. you know, like lie just so that he doesn't have to do the thing that then he spends the rest of his life kind of like trying to make up for. The and one. Go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, just thinking about when when he was alive and the fact that he 95 percent was gay, like we're pretty sure. Uh, so literally everything is a performance because he can't be true to himself. Right. Early yeah. on when he's a kid that he goes to the theater and he's like, oh, the stage is beautiful because men are women. And so I can openly look at that and say, look how beautiful it is. Like, so everything is a performance at all times. So I think that right. really crushes his reality. I mean, I as much like as this is a destruction of the artist's brain, you know, like how it's how so hard to live as an artist. It's also, you know, uh, how terrible life is when you force yourself to remain in the closet you know like that's everybody faking the one scene that i can think of where he does seem happy maybe not happy but comfortable is he's in it's black and white but it's um it's the adult actor and he's he's in what seems to be like a gay bar and he's watching two guys dance as he sits at the table and he gets to be just the observer Mm -hmm. and feel like feel like this is his place and he's forgetting for one second as he takes a drink that he can never tell anybody about this experience. He has to watch it. Like, he has to go out the back door so nobody sees him because he's a celebrity. But right here in this moment, watching two guys dance together, that's that might be it. That might be the only moment of the movie. Oh. Damn. Unless you guys can think of something else. 
No. <laughs> I was just thinking about how heavy and sad it is. It's what, and then it's interesting that the legacy of the movie then is that he had written a couple of books that explored homosexuality, and one of them was like sort of the centerpiece of what his family didn't want included in the story. So that feels like just another layer of silencing him and of forcing him to be something he wasn't. Like he did find a way to articulate this this part of himself, and then it gets cut out of this movie that is like striving to be like so to the very core truthful mm-hmm. and then we're, we're sort of denied that opportunity although again as we said in the intro the movie sets up that this is a homosexual person pretty obviously and kind of takes that like for granted you know uh, a lot of this movie you can't understand if you don't see him as as like you said 95 percent gay i mean you know I, I he does get married obviously and have kids but that's which there's no literally no, no mention yeah of. Right, <laughs> so that means something, right there, and that's just a that's just a form of being in the closet, right? Like you have to take it to that extreme, otherwise people will sort of figure it out. But it's it's so crazy though that he had this life of all these masks and not a lot of personal truth, and then his legacy as well is lies and hiding that truth. Like yeah. that's that's probably not what he wanted if he thought about it. It feels like the project still has one more like phase like someone else has to come along now and tell the last part of the story which is the part that kind of foregrounds his homosexuality because this movie brings it up but then i feel like doesn't engage with how much of an explanation it might be for certain things it feels like ultimately the movie kind of like brings it up and then in the second half it just doesn't get a lot of real estate and so i would kind of wonder if somebody else could come along and maybe connect some more of the dots between um you know what a life like you said lying having to lie constantly what that does to you and everything well it's funny because this movie like we said earlier asks a lot of questions gives no answers so like there's like a other than that saint sebastian thing which only in talking to you guys did i realize how often that is coming up like there's it feels like there's not a lot of dots at least on first viewing there's not a lot of dots connecting it's one of those movies figure it out yeah it's definitely one of those movies where i I think paul schrader would say you have to see it twice because Mm -hmm. You don't know the significance of things that happen early in the movie without understanding what happens at the end. Yeah. I was able to squeeze in another viewing, and so a lot of those connections between the imagery of like the first act and the imagery of the third act, it, it, it helps. If you remember in the first act what to look out for, then you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I see how that connects. We also have to consider, too, we haven't done a lot of 1985 talk about this movie, but when you're making a movie in 85 about what happened in the 50s, it's a lot different than a 2020 movie like in a movie that comes out in 2020 a character will just be gay yeah and it won't be a character trait or even a plot line they just are and so we pick up on these things subconsciously at this point and it doesn't phase us at all whereas it's this guy being homosexual like is very obvious to us but i can see theater like people coming out of the theater let's say they saw it in a theater and being shocked that this guy was gay throughout the entire movie Uh even though all of the imagery and fingers point to it he got so angry when his friend said that he was flabby (laughs) (laughs) i guess we don't like it when our buddies tell us the truth all right gentlemen it's speed round time what was the worst is this at the end of the movie is this the worst planned political maneuver in history gotta be gotta be uh best case scenario best case scenario is he like gets everyone on that military base to agree with him and i don't see how that could possibly happen no. still 
somebody else is just going to come in and be like, you're all under arrest. Yeah, I don't know what you're doing. It's one regiment. Like, it looks like maybe a couple hundred dudes max. Or maybe go even go, go even crazier than that. Say he restores the emperor to power through this action. That's a terrible idea. That This guy is not equipped to lead Japan because he has a ceremonial position. And so it would be like making a reality TV show host. His strategy was like, <laughs> no, what are you talking <laughs> about? His strategy was along the same lines. Now my analogy is not going to be as good. But uh, <laughs> uh, the guy when I went to college, uh, there'd be a guy who came up with a sign and said, like, Jesus rules, you're all going to hell. It, and if it w- it'd be like all everybody on the college is like, oh, my God, he's right. And then we all <laughs> just follow this person. And yeah. the person was like, oh, I am not equipped for that. No, I don't have a follow up. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I guess uh, the okay. attractive of you will be my wives. A dog chasing a car. <laughs> the movie <laughs> The movie has been called too cold and too respectful. Is this true? And if so, is that part of it? Yeah, I think I don't know if it's too respectful because like e- most biopics is they're like look what a piece of shit Johnny Cash is, but look how charismatic and great he is. And this movie is like he was a very good writer, but I don't know if the movie's like look how great he is. I I I think I have a bone to pick with how respectful it looks. Uh, it's yeah, r- it's writing movie, over person. He's pathetic. Right. <laughs> like yeah, I think that the movie is about like how could somebody have such like transformative, beautiful, wonderful ideas and then when applying those ideas to his actual own life do the stupidest like yeah it's not just that this is like a bad idea or you shouldn't commit suicide or anything like that it's like this right. is a stupid profoundly stupid idea that a brilliant delicate wonderful person came up with and then tried to carry out and it, it's such a tragedy it's so it's just the dumbest thing i've ever heard of in my entire life i think when people say that i think that they're used to scene 12 flows into scene 13 flows into scene 14 and we get to see every transition throughout the movie mm-hmm. As opposed to this, which just sort of like it puts it all out there, and it's a purposeful order, but it's not what we're used to. And then you have to like you have to like watch the movie, feel the movie, and then think about the movie and say like, oh shit, that was that was in depth, even though it wasn't as traditional as we think stories should be told. Yeah, I guess cold comes from that. Like we don't see the character of Mishima emoting often. His emotion does come out through the story parts. That's like where. It's the musical rules. Yeah. Once the character is going to emote too hard, they just break into a crazy right. stage. Stage. I mean, with the most profound. Well, one of the most profound emotional things that happens to him is when his boyfriend or or, or whatever insults him, and his response to that all occurs like beneath the surface of his face. The actor mm-hmm. does an, a wonderful job with it, but there's not a big explosive like you know emotional act because that's just not within his personality first two names we see are francis ford coppola and george lucas did that change your viewing experience and what that's how it changed my viewing experience it just started (laughs) off with a like wait what are we doing (laughs) how and why just money because they had pull like it does feel like both of them especially at this time are like this guy's making a movie we wish we could still make but we're a little too trapped i do agree with that yeah i think that uh at this point paul schrader for their, like, uh, you know, there was this whole troupe, Scorsese and Coppola and Lucas and Pop Filter Hall of Famer Steven Spielberg (laughs) and Brian De Palma, and they all hung out. And Lucas and Coppola had achieved far more commercial success than Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. But Scorsese had this guy, Paul Schrader, write for him Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And they were like, I want a piece of that. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't want 
I don't want to direct this script. Like, I'm not that ballsy. I'll just put up the money instead of Which, saying... Which, thank fucking God. Could yeah, you imagine George Lucas made this movie? <laughs> and then these George cute Lucas little bears walk through. <laughs> uh, what role does humor and joking around play? I think we sort of got to this, but in this mostly serious movie. I thought it was really strange. or Not strange. I thought it was very interesting how often he would break the tension of these really emotional moments that he had himself had created, Mishima, by making a weird little joke about mm-hmm. it. And it's because he doesn't really feel comfortable with people. So he doesn't know how to create and maintain tension. He has and to break it. That's a gentle form of manipulation, too. Like, oh, look at me solving the situation that I caused. Yeah. Yeah. And that they're all, they all, like, the way most people are laughing is the way when your manager makes a joke. You're like, I think I have to here because it will this be more awkward to not laugh. Part of my job is to laugh at your joke. Does the story of Mishima at all remind you of the story of Juice World, who Greg once said to me, did anyone listen to any of his fucking lyrics when he was alive? Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, Juice World was that SoundCloud rapper who recently died of a drug overdose and whose every song is like, I am in so much pain that all I know how to do is do drugs right up to the point where I die. And I'm going to die one day, and I hope I die. And then, like, one day, I went on Twitter, and they were like, yeah, Juice World died just the way he said he was going to. It is That's an apt, that's an apt comparison, yeah. because um, obviously this guy's books were like, I'm going to do something crazy um, because action is needed, and I want to go flaming out. And it's like, oh, he did it. <laughs> He did the thing he was always telling us about. But, like, we talked about this earlier, but I think this is part of Paul Schrader's point of, like, listen to the lyrics. Know that they're fiction. Know that they're not. It's not 100%. You know, like, you can see the strings being pulled. You can see the couches, the furniture being moved on the track. But there's also a lot of truth here, you know. And it's I think it's fun to parcel out what is real and what is not. Um, Not everybody likes being on a podcast, I guess. But also, you got to take some of this shit seriously. Well, then should we all be worried about Paul Schrader between this Raging Bull Taxi Driver and First Reformed? Uh, like, should we be worried that he's also going to go out hard? Yeah, what, specifically this and First Reformed, man. Like, what is this guy going to do? What I heard is that he's becoming some sort of super scroll where each one of his limbs is like one of those movies. And <laughs> I don't want to fight that guy. Uh, <laughs> which of the three of us would be the best at having our own private army? Mike. Yes? That's my both. I'm ringing in, and that's my answer. No, Why I think it'd be Ryan. You, Mike, you are third place for sure. What, that's insane. Uh, what makes you think that Ryan. you would be good at it? I can translate better to normies than you guys can, and weirdos Ooh. don't join private. You need that normie translator. That's a good point. <laughs> no, I think Ryan is, is the natural leader among us, and I think oh that my goodness. more than all that Mishima really had was he was able to like kind of like play that role of leader to them shit it's about and to get insulting it didn't it didn't it, it like it almost didn't matter what he said this movie also kind of reminded me of the master um because mm-hmm. like it, it's just when you have a charismatic figure in both his his novel and in his real life at some point it, it's like this thing isn't gonna do our our, our, our actions aren't gonna have any results and he says that to his acolytes, and his acolytes are like, yeah, let's do it anyway. So it could have been anything. Yeah. Like, Nobody will <laughs> ever watch this web series. Let's just, <laughs> I don't know, devote our lives and every weekend for years. <laughs> First five minutes of this movie, it said he had his personal, his own personal army. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah dude. And then by the end, I was like, oh, no, don't. If you form one, that 
that's that's not good for you. It sounds it, cool when you say personal army, but then when you're standing in a ballroom to announce your new uniforms, <laughs> then it's like, okay, wait, this might be cheesy as shit. <laughs> yeah. The other problem too is like, where do you keep your personal army? And your yeah. personal sleeveys. That's great. I, Greg I got that. I said around or in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> Topical. Is, is this the final straw? Will you ever be able to watch a traditional biopic again? No, I mean, I we all go home during the holidays. We are home to our have wives. To, have to hang out with those family members, so you'll go see that. But uh, other than that, no. Uh, I like. I do like the the trend where they'll just show a snippet of a life, but you can't do the thing anymore where you try to like run through an entire life in two hours and then also give it meaning and have it like have narrative arcs and everything. This is a good way to do it, though. Like. Show what they said about things every once in a while. What I would do, because this Paul Schrader book is all about slow cinema. What I would do is I would film it in real time and then fast forward it so it's two hours. I would reverse that slow cinema <laughs> thing and just let's we'll sit here for two hours and watch sixty years go by. Just Benny Hilling. What, what kind life. of soundtrack would you put on that, Ryan? Uh, I would probably put. <laughs> that is the end of speed round. <laughs> When we come back, let's give this movie awards. By the way, guys, um, Paul Schrader has been nominated for one Academy Award. He has won zero. He wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote Raging Bull. Do you know what he was nominated for? I don't know. No. It's first reformed. It took till 2018 for him to get nominated Whoa. for one single Oscar. Definitely not nominated for Mishima. When we get, come back, let's hand some awards to this movie. Thank you for listening and for your support. If you want to support us more directly, go over to patreon.com slash your pop filter. Pick a tier, shed a tier, get some extra stuff. There's extra shows, extra long shows. Uh, you can make Ryan draw you pictures, make me write you a poem. There's all kinds of stuff over there. You can even get a shirt off our very own backs. That's patreon.com slash your pop filter. We also want to say thank you to Shady Monk for providing all the tunes you hear on this show check them out on spotify bandcamp soundcloud wherever the kids get their music that i'm too old to know check out shady monk back to you greg all right gentlemen the only thing that we know about these awards is that mishima will win all five other than that we got to see what will happen our first award our first moody is that what they're called moody's yeah moody for your booty moody for your booty is most relatable moments Greg, what did you find to be the most relatable moment? Uh, I had a stutter when I was a kid, and I thought the actor did a really good job of uh, portraying how much you like try to get the word out, but just absolutely can't, and how frustrating that is. Uh, so the, in the first part, the guy from the Golden Pavilion that has this stutter. I've... Uh, I've been around a lot of people who have actual stutters and you think that it's just porky pig like you you stumble a little bit and then you just choose a new word uh-huh. but it, it it's really really hard for them to talk like it is it's like choking a, a little bit non-stop uphill battle yeah it's like choking a little bit um or like struggling to breathe or something or like it, it almost like a spasm you know you just can't get like the machinery of your mouth to run smoothly the machinery how do you <laughs> Get oh like how do how do you, do you I train did it out is there exercise I did what? speech therapy 
So uh, when I was a kid, uh, I got to leave the class to sometimes go to speech therapy. And sometimes I got to leave the class to go to reading therapy. I was a double threat. <laughs> Mike, what was the most relatable moment for you? Uh, also early on, there's a, the flashback to he's uh, a little older now. He's finally at school with other kids, but they don't like him. And they're playing like King of the Mountain on the fence. Mm-hmm. And he plays and they make fun of him and he wins, but they still make fun of him and then run away. And succeeding and then still getting mocked is my childhood, wow. for sure. The rare moments you win, it does not matter. That sounds like a very specific Mike one. <laughs> Fucking shit, gentlemen. Greg, Mike. I have no choice but to reward both of your childhood points for that one. Yay, it was worth it. <laughs> uh, next one, Mike, is best chapter, which I find, like, just an absolutely disgusting way to you know analyze movies like this Mm -hmm. but hey it's an award so chapter one chapter two chapter three chapter four those are the nominees Uh, (laughs) and the winner is (laughs) what do you think was the best uh i think chapter two uh art is it's where in the present uh he tells his soldiers they can't commit seppuku they can't let the general commit seppuku it's only his seppuku (laughs) so it's the first hint like oh this guy might suck uh And it also has the line, I thought I was a symbol of times, a kamikaze for beauty, but I was only a boy who wrote bad poetry. Uh, so a lot of great stuff. And then in Kyoko's house, I think, is a dope story. That, that could seriously that be... not your most relatable moment? That could be a Fallout <laughs> Boy lyric. <laughs> I <Dude>. know. <laughs> I thought I was or a Or a title of a song. <laughs> oh. All right, but uh, I, I, I think this chapter is mostly marked by the book excerpts, right? So we're going with Kyoko's house? Kyoko's house. Yeah. Greg, where are we going? Uh, mine was Runaway Horses because I felt like there the crystal crystallization of like everything that had happened that you could see in that. And then a big element of it being like, and it's not going to work. Um, I do have a major question about the Runaway Horses part, which is he gets caught and then is in, seems like he's in jail. And then in the very next scene, he's out and he goes and stabs the rich guy. And I'm not sure how he got out, but that... That whole part, I, because I feel like it does such a good job of getting you prepared for the ending of the movie. Yeah, I don't know. But other than, the, like, these are excerpts and yeah. just decided not to include a part. Yeah. Uh, I do want to have a shout out to those prison, like, those jail cells. Because instead of being square and there was, like, a door on one side, they were turned to the side. So they're diamond uh-huh. shapes. And the entire corner comes out. If we were doing shopping spree, guys, I would pick one of those. <laughs> the set design in this movie is really, really good. Yeah. I think that's part of why it gets away with its like very obvious sets, is that they look super cool. I'm going to go with Mike on this one with Kyoko's House, because uh, oh. chapter two is, with any movie like this, that's what your make-or-break chapter. That's when people either decide to go with you or not, and I think that chapter two killed also, it. Also, what a story. Like Someone that wants to like maim and kill somebody, and then someone who like offers themselves up for that. That's yeah. true. Love. That's a crazy idea for a story. <laughs> Cringiest moment, Greg. Where are we going? Okay, um, the part in the Golden Pavilion where he's like, "Here's how we're gonna pick up the ladies. I'm gonna bump into her and then just start yelling at her right away." Uh, and just the whole manipulative air of all of that, it just very much felt like all this stuff that we keep talking about. We hate from '85, which is this trick women you know get them all confused and then maybe in the time when they're confused you can make them fall in love with you and then do sex to them it's just it feels like a piece of all of that and then also use your uh disability yeah as like this you know like gaslighting pity move that totally works apparently 
I do believe, unfortunately, uh, the thing that is so upsetting is I do believe that what that guy says actually would work. And that's what's so upsetting about it is like it's a it seems to be a effective method of manipulating people. But yeah, it was nice to see some classic 1985 high school shit yeah. in this uh, 50s uh, drama. Yeah, for sure. Mike, where are we going? Uh, in I think he, Mishima is four in the flashback. It's when we're getting to the grandma, and he cannot even look outside, and she makes him to rub his, her legs. And forced leg rubbing has different connotations <laughs> post the favorite. Uh, and I just couldn't. I couldn't. Yeah, that movie might have broken us for something like "Come Rub Grandma's Legs." And the, nope. <laughs> but honestly, like that's not just us being weird, right? Because then in the in the in the Kyoko's house part, um, the whole that whole relationship with him and his mom, and then yeah. the older lady gangster. Yep. You know, something's going on there. It's not good. Yarp. I'm gonna give that to Greg for the perfectly 85 uh, disability bump, but. <laughs> Uh, I also want to point out in the r- leg rubbing scene, the first thing that Grandpa does is uh, he's uh, uh, like watching the children play, and he's just enamored by it. You now this is like the start of his how he observes, and the Grandma's like shut the shut the shutters or shut the drapes, and he does, and then just still stands at the window like he can't <laughs> see anything anymore. But like now, okay, so I will watch this drape then. I guess. Did you notice the way he moved was like such a little soldier? Like, even as a little boy, he, like, marched in and, like, did, like, you know, very, like, precise motions. He never really yeah, got all, to be a little boy. It's all about the parents. It's not serving the children. It's the children serving the parents. And that, based on Mary Trump's book, is a good way to fuck up children. Uh, director's signature moment, Greg. How did Paul Schrader Schrader the most? Okay. We don't have a ton to go by, but it was very hard not to see so much of First Reformed in this movie. Like, it's about doing the big thing, right? And 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 standing for something and letting yourself be consumed by something. And so um, just the shot of um, Mishima's face as he goes to stab or does stab himself reminded me so much of the um, Ethan Hawke wrapping himself in the barbed wire and then just the really close face of like this person doing this really extreme thing to them. And this moment that is both pain, but transcendence and um, getting confused, getting lost in, <laughs> in the, all those, th- those things going on at the same time. Yeah. One of, uh, one of his things is definitely this, and you see it in first reform, but also taxi driver and raging bull is a uh, soldier going off to a war of their own creation. Mm-hmm. And so it's shot exactly like we shoot when, uh, you know, an actual army person is going off to war where they get dressed very slowly. They put all their equipment together and it's shot in that same like proud patriotic way until you realize what they're actually going off to war to. Yeah. And we saw that in Ethan Hawke. Like it looked just like somebody getting ready for war, but an unnecessary one that, you know, he was the starter of. So that that one was really good. Mike, what do you got? Well, I want to do a different one, I guess, because I can't just say yes and say different things about that. So I'd say also First Reformed and, and this have the breaking reality. And with First Reformed, it is there's moments you don't know if they're real or if they're just in Ethan Hawke's mind. And this one has the, well, we're breaking by going to the stories and having it look different than the rest of the movie. The like flying all around the world from first reform. Like flying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I would say flying all around the world. Until you brought that up. I had not remembered that. It's like such a big moment in that movie, but I had kind of forgotten it because it's not like any other part of it. Yeah. It's fucking. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, that's the weird thing about Schrader is that he, his book is called transcendence in film. And, but he is at his heart, an American director. 
And so in uh, First Reformed, his transcendence is showing literal transcendence. You know, like he doesn't he doesn't follow his idols and do it with the camera. He's just like, no, 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 get him to space. They're transcending. <laughs> do you see? Oh man, those were both really good. So both get a point. Maybe we're starting to understand movies. <laughs> Took a few years. And finally, pound for pound performance, Mike. Where are we going with this one? I, I think it's hard to argue that Ken Ogata, who plays Mishima in 1970, I think. Uh, he's the narrator. He's the main Mishima, uh, which is a great wrestling name. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the like that we talked about before, like the hurt or rage on his face, but it goes away. Like he dissipates it so quickly, but you can like still sort of see it in his eyes is, is fucking nuts. Did he have the believable charisma that somebody must have to get to this point? Yeah, that I I do think out of everything that was the least believable when he was doing a cut up. But I was just like, well, he's a celebrity. Like people will just laugh at anything they say. But like you could see him. What was good about the acting is you could see he wasn't acting as a charismatic person. He was acting as somebody who's watched charismatic people. Imagine and trying to do it. We are yeah. we are seeing him through a very specific lens, kind of of his awkwardness. I mean, we've seen him as like an awkward child rubbing his grandma's legs and so it's hard to 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 then see him as a suave cool guy but again kind of reminds me of the master is if you were not in the thrall of that guy when the reporters start questioning him he just freaks out and like is no longer does the spell anymore and that's mishima too like if you're an, an acolyte he seems cool but if you question him he seems ridiculous yes but philip seymour hoffman i do think has the ability to when he's not screaming be very charismatic yeah and so the, the it tricks the audience into sort of if not like fully going with it and becoming an acolyte at least understanding how you could become acolytical whereas that kenagata i think needed a little bit more like paul rudd almost yeah in order to like make it more believable or even donald trump yeah you know like it, that's two different things but uh gets the same result that's a really valid criticism i think greg where are we going uh you hate to just do the thing where you say the, the same answer, so I'll say an even more ridiculous one, which is, I'm going to say it's everybody, Ryan. I think, uh, I honestly think from top to bottom, this is the best acted movie by everybody involved that we've seen. Uh, even the little kid does like an amazing little kid job, and it, it seemed like maybe they didn't have to traumatize him to get that performance out of him, but I don't know. Um, but like everybody would just come in and just absolutely be throwing smoke and just doing a great job. And it always kept the tone of the movie exactly where it needed to be. It, this movie could have gone goofy in so many different places. And it's the, it's the acting of like every little person. Uh, like that guy I brought up that in the, in the scene at the, at the cafe when everyone's walking around them. Um, and he's talking about like, you know, if you're going to be at an adherent to physical beauty, you should kill yourself at the height of your beauty. That guy is on the screen for like two minutes and he's like delivering a transcendent performance. Yeah, it's like th some of those TV shows where there's just a style to the TV show that you can't act poorly. Like you yeah. just come in, act the way that everybody else does and it will all work. I'm going to give it to Mike because um, I do think that Ogata was ultimately awesome. But Mike. to speak back to Greg's thing, like one, one way that Schrader does follow in the footsteps of his idols and one of them is Bresson, Mike, that you know we watched a bunch of movies from mm -hmm. is every single note is stop fucking acting. Yeah. And every like every time he uh, he says cut, he goes over to the actors and says, "Les, what are you yeah. doing? 
it really we're going acting where we're gonna on make you. the story come off because of the camera and the tone and the the waiting and the patience and stop trying to like hog the spotlight because all you're doing is you're you know like you're taking all like uh bishop from the x-men you're taking all the stuff that's around you and then you're firing it out right at the camera yeah. we don't need that all right so your awards are for most relatable moment we have a tie it was greg stutter and mike's being made fun of no matter what he does go us uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're cool best chapter, we have chapter two. <laughs> kyoko's eyes thank god uh <laughs> Cringiest moment was the disabled bump of 1985. Director's uh, signature, Greg, you said uh, Mishima's face, and Mike, you said breaking reality. That those both tied for the win. And performance of the movie was Ken Ogata. When we come back, guys, I'm gonna total up all of these points. We'll talk about who won today's show, other than Mishima, and how far do we think Mishima will go in the bracket. Gentlemen, the conversations have been had. The tallies have been totaled. And now, Mashima goes into the bracket. Where do we think it's going to end up? Uh, man, this could be a sneaky movie. This could do it. I'll tell you one thing it has overcome and see is it wasn't such a brutal viewing experience. And so it it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe it feels a little bit better, but it felt maybe... Uh, a little more important than Brazil, which was probably even a more fun experience watching it. So is it like it's asking more questions than just like the horrors about the horrors of war or? Yeah. I I just think because um, come and see is so overwhelming with how brutal everything that's going on Mm -hmm. is. Yeah. And so I think that you can breathe a little bit more when you're watching this movie. Um, And so it's not just, it's not such a miserable experience, you know? Like, I watched this movie twice. I, I like to watch the, the, the movies that we watch at least two times before the podcast. With Come and See, I was just like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to do that, you know? <laughs> I came, I saw. That's fine. Uh, and I do want to say this, too, to the listeners, that this the, the conversation that we've had today may have me- made it seem that, like, to coin, go back to Schrader's phrase, slow cinema, um, this is not what he's talking about. You know, this is... I do not think it's there's some sort of like entryway that you do have to get through. It's not super traditional, but it is not one of those movies. It's not Belatar. It's not where like there's one shot for eight minutes and you yeah. just sit there and watch it. This is once you get into the flow of this movie, it's super watchable. Yeah. So don't yeah. be scared off by like anything that we said. It employs several different color palettes and it does it in a in a stark and electrifying way. It's a combination of music and and image that, you know, you feel into like the core of yourself. Yeah, it's it's a galvanizing experience. I mean, for better or worse, it's uh for a movie made by an American dude and you feel yeah. both side, sides of those things. Yeah. All right, guys, I I have tallied the points. Um Mike. Yes. You scored, I would say, an incredibly high, especially for you, uh, 32 points. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Greg scored 64 points. <laughs> but the drop pad has a thing where it counts Greg's points as two. <laughs> <laughs> 
and you just now figured this out? <laughs> yeah, just now. Does that I mean thought... I've never won before? <laughs> <laughs> no, usually I divide your points in half, and you're still you have way more than Mike. Um, <laughs> but sixty-four divided by two is thirty-two, guys. Uh-oh. Oh, oh! And... No, Greg and I are best friends. We ignore Ryan for a <laughs> Yay! week. Yay! <laughs> Uh, Greg gets a point, I guess. For no, he said yay. No, that w- no, I was saying yay to something else. I thought I saw you were going to give me a point, and I was going to say like yay for for me, I won. But I'm going to keep it here. Uh, it's it's I think it's our first tie, and I thought about saying like, uh, all right, trivia, how many chapters did this movie have? And whoever <laughs> says their name first, I guess wins. <laughs> but no, you guys are coming into the ring as both of my best friends, and yet not. Each other's best friends <laughs> next week. And I want to make that very clear. If either one of you text each other or bring each other a single basket of muffins, uh, I'm going to freak the fuck out. For and a you movie know I as will. Like, unique as this, I, I think this is a, a fine ending. We did. We had a good show. He made some good points. I made some good points. It'll go down in history as probably the only tie. What's up next week, guys? Do you know? Ron, dude. Ron! And I run Kurosawa uh, movies, yeah. I haven't ended the show, Mike. You're so close to winning right now. <laughs> Samurai. So we are going to in a in a movie podcast that just talks about like the last thirty, forty years or so. We're gonna get to do a Kurosawa movie. I'm very excited. I've never seen it before. Have you guys seen it? No, no. And eighty five. Any movie that I haven't seen in 85 <laughs> has just changed my life like i'm just like i'm perpetually blown away like this has been such a cool experience we should have done lady hawk greg and you'd be like oh my god lady hawk <laughs> is she a lady so is she a hawk i don't know i wasn't paying attention <laughs> so thank you so much gentlemen for doing a wonderful job a exactly the same job how many podcasts can say you guys did the exact same amount of good podcasting uh for my for greg i am ryan and please Keep watching.